Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as your people um, to draw near to you through the work of the Holy Spirit, to sit under your word and to fix our eyes on the beauty of the gospel applied in our hearts. As we do so today, we ask that your will be done um, in the revolutionary words of Jesus that we see in his Sermon on the Mount, Lord. Make us revolutionary people, not according to our power or our might, um, but according to the wonderfully profound message of the gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what do you think the most memorized verse in the Bible is? Perhaps it's the timeless classic John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Maybe you grew up in youth group and you found the cheat code to Bible memory, John 11:35, shortest book, or shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The best way to fill your Awana badge is with that verse. We know it's not Isaiah 44, 6, so is it perhaps what we looked at last week on a cultural level, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But I would like to propose that today we find the world's most memorized verse. It's plastered on signs at protests, placed in windows of living rooms, hurled around on social media, perhaps even lobbed towards you this week. And what is this verse that has such profound universal appeal that it seems to transcend anyone, whether you grew up in the church or whether you did not grow up in the church, whether you grew up in Africa or you grew up in America? It's the verse we encounter today in Luke 6, 37. Judge not, lest you too be judged. For us who are here on Memorial Day weekend, let us not judge those who are not. as we apply this passage. There's one thing your nominally Christian coworker or your non-Christian neighbor knows about your Bible, and that is that your Bible says, don't judge. But if there's one thing our post-Christian world knows about Christians, it's that they are often accused of being judgmental, critical, and hypocritical. Now, before we get too far into our passage today, it's important to remind ourselves that we are in the middle of Jesus' handbook on discipleship. We're spending four weeks as disciples in the book of Luke, and it's important as we encounter conflict between Christians and the general public that we understand what else Jesus has told us regarding how a Christian is perceived in culture. Consider Luke 6, 22, which we looked at two weeks ago. Speaking to his disciples, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Peter, who, Simon Peter, one who is sitting here listening to these words come from Jesus' mouth, reminded his own churches in dispersion in First Peter of this, or Second Peter, First Peter, JK, of this profound reality, verses, chapter four, verses four through five. With respect to this, they that are the Gentiles who do not believe are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And so here we see that when you stop giving into what we see in verse three, drunkenness and parties and deceit and lawlessness, people notice that and they don't like it. They malign you. They mock you. Make no mistake. Christians will always be odd and out of place to a watching world. 
and that's because of our dual citizenship. We live, we act, we love as members of this world which is fading away, and yet we belong to a world and a kingdom which is yet to come, which is unshakable. Jesus' message today is not that his disciples should always and only be accepted by the world. James tells us that to seek acceptance and friendship with the world at the expense of friendship and and, uh, familiarity with Jesus is to forsake Jesus, to become his enemy. But what Jesus is saying is that when we are hated, maligned, mocked, and given all sort of categorical badges, it ought to be for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. It ought to be for reasons that flow from gospel centrality and not moments where we overstep the bounds of the gospel. The cross of Jesus is offensive to a dying world. But the character of the Christian ought not to be. And so as we walk through a world with issues and conflict and strife, how can we avoid harm for the wrong reasons? How can we avoid being labeled as something for reasons that Jesus would cause us to avoid? And today in our text, when it comes to Christians in an unhelpful spirit of hypocrisy or judgmentalism, Jesus has two questions for his disciples. Why is it so? And how can it be? If the gospel is true, then this sort of judgmentalism and hypocrisy has no place in the Lord's church. If you're here today and you've perhaps experienced this from someone, maybe you're a Christian or maybe you're not, what I hope you find today is why it is that Christians do actually care about sin in your life, but how they might better and more like Jesus deal with that issue. But today's primary audience is actually for believers. This is Jesus's lecture on how you avoid discipleship malpractice. It won't spare you from opposition with the world, but it just might save you from the folly of anti-gospel hypocrisy. It seeks to guide our mouths which speak and our hands which help by directing us first and foremost to our own hearts and what we have experienced in the gospel. And our big picture today is this, that gospel-shaped encounters with others requires a personal experience with humbling mercy. Gospel-shaped experiences with others require a personal experience with humbling mercy. And we see three fruits of this humbling mercy in this text. First, in verses 37 through 38, we will see that Christians are to be ruled by grace. Verses 39 through 42 show that Christians are to be led by humility. And lastly, verses 43 through 45 show that Christians are to be filled with goodness. So to begin today, let's read our first portion of scripture, verses 37 through 38, which was just read for us. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So kind of like we did last week, because of the cultural status quo of our understanding of this text, it helps for us to preface it a little bit, to frame our minds on what it is we're encountering here. Jesus is not saying that there's no need for judgment or condemnation. In fact, Jesus is writing this because he knows the problems 
and the tension surrounding judgment and complicated matters. He knows, our first point of preface, that we are by nature judgmental. That is true whether you are a Christian, whether you are a Hindu, or whether you are atheists. Judgment is a human problem. We cannot escape it. Take, for example, one chain of gyms which market itself as, quote, a judgment-free zone. You could go there, and regardless of your body type or your workout competency, it's supposed to be a safe place where you don't feel intimidated or bullied or any of those negative, harmful things. And yet, this gym also has a policy called the Lunk Alert. They give out warnings to people who are, quote, lunking. And they describe a lunk as one who grunts, drops weight, drops weights, not dropping weight. Um, I guess there's charity for that in a gym. Who drops the weights and they add judges. Isn't that interesting? How two seemingly harmless things are tied to judgment. But then they give an example of what a lunk is. And this is the example that's on their big sign. It says, Rick is slamming his weights, wearing a bodybuilding tank top, drinking out of a gallon water jug. What a lunk. It seems to me that Rick has wandered in to a judgment-free zone only to be judged. Their own description of what a lunk is only includes one of the things that Rick is doing, slamming his weights. That's the only thing that's defined as being lunking. And yet, do you see what they do? They judge the rest of Rick. They look at his clothes, his paraphernalia, his water bottle, and what do they conclude? Because Rick looks like this, sounds like this, dresses like this, and drinks out of this, Rick is therefore judgmental and is no longer allowed to lift weights without getting lunked, or whatever that means. In fact, the claim that any people group, Christian or otherwise, is judgmental, is in fact a judgment. And it's something that as you're on social media, here you are today, amongst 200-some people who probably, hopefully, have heard the gospel, I would urge you to remind yourself that you probably know more Christians than the people who are saying things about Christians online merely by being here. And because we have unfortunate encounters with a few individuals that are genuinely judgmental, hypocritical, and harmful, we also see the foolishness of applying a single category to a people group which amounts to 2.5 billion people worldwide and calling them judgmental. Because the truth is, we are all judgmental. We cannot escape it. And that's because, this is the second point of preface, Judgment is innate to us because there are things in this world that we must judge, both for safety and for joy. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, judgment became our burdensome reality, where now human beings know good and evil. We have the challenge of having to discern in order for our livelihood what is good and beneficial and what is bad and dangerous. Because our judgment has been clouded, we have the burden of judgment. And therefore, it's a good thing that we should do. There are things in this world that on account of sin, we should judge as dangerous, as harmful. We are in Montana. If I come to you from Oli's with some sushi, it is probably good for you to judge that. To look at it, to smell it, to consider it, and say, 
Maybe not. Maybe I'll go for one of the roller hot dogs instead. In light of this week's tragedy, it is right to condemn the depravity and wickedness of school shootings. A world without judgment and a world without condemnation is not a better place as long as sin remains. It is merely a more disoriented place. A place where danger abounds because the edges are never defined. A place where we accidentally can encounter something dangerous because we are refusing to view it through the discernment and judging eyes of a wise man. One of the greatest movies, sports or not, is Remember the Titans. Disagree with me or be right. And this movie challenges the integration of a black school and a white school through the lens of a football team. And this movie would be far less endearing, far less critically acclaimed if the coach showed up that first day of practice, saw the segregated huddles and the racial slurs, and said, there's nothing wrong here. Who am I to judge? That would be foolishness. But what the coach did do is he saw the evil inside the hearts of those players and those coaches and even inside of his own heart. But seeing was only part of it too. The movie would be tragically woeful if seeing the evil in these segregated circles, seeing the evil that was in the hearts of these young boys and these men, he chose to do nothing. If there was no racial reconciliation at the end, no one watches the movie. It's painful. He took the posture to address what was judged to be evil, and rightfully so. But it was the posture and the way in which he dealt with that that was endearing. Jesus, in this text, is trying to help naturally judgmental people like you and me interact with broken people like you and me with real issues in a real world in a way that's genuinely helpful and not harmful. How does he seek to do this? By painting a genuinely and exclusively Christian way forward. Because we have the cross, we can navigate with with difficulty, with discernment, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can navigate all of this landscape because of what Jesus has done. And this is our first point today. In a world of judgment and condemnation, believers are to be ruled by grace. That's what we see in verses 37 through 39. And remember these commands to not judge and to not condemn come immediately following what we saw last week in Luke 6 verses 35 through 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. You see, we can only be ruled by grace when we are first and foremost ruled by God. The Most High, our Heavenly Father, acknowledges and deals with evil because he is God and we are not. Jesus isn't saying that we should never judge or condemn what's evil. In fact, Jesus gives directions to the church that are opposite that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, don't judge those who are outside the church. Judge those who are inside the church. Discern if their lives match up with their doctrine. In Matthew 18, Jesus actually calls the whole church in issues of church discipline to gauge the repentance of an unrepentant believer. 
He invites you. He actually commissions the disciples and says, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. But while Christians are to deal with sin through the practices and methods that God himself has given us in scripture, while we are called to call sin, sin, and call evil, evil, we are to realize that we are never the ultimate judge and jury. God alone is. And we know what Jesus is doing here because he's not just saying don't judge. He's condemning that specifically with this idea of condemnation. It's this court scene of judgment and and verdict. He's not merely talking about discerning. He's talking about rendering a final verdict. When a judge rules with a condemnation in court, the time for arguments have passed, the time for pleasantries are over, the times of innocent have, innocence have ended, and when they issue that verdict, that person is no longer treated the same way. They're treated differently. They're treated as one who is condemned. Jesus is warning us in our own limitations, in our own weaknesses, of issuing a condemnation of judgment, which seems to allow us to treat them differently and write them off forever. But this is not what Jesus calls the church to do, even in issues of church discipline. Did you know that? That when Jesus calls the church to put out somebody from among them because they are living an unrepentant life, the church is to do it in hopes that that judgment would change. That actually in putting that person out, they would be led to repentance. Then Paul in 2 Corinthians says, if that person repents, be sure to turn and welcome him so he is not grieved beyond repair. The goal of our judgment is that we would be proven wrong by repentance. Our judgments, even at the highest level of calling the body of Christ to make that, are limited, imperfect judgments. But God's judgment is exclusive It is final and it is binding. God's condemnation is eternal, infinite, and perfect. There is a judgment and there is condemnation for sin and evil. Our world cannot cry for justice rightly without acknowledging that judgment and condemnation must exist. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that all of us will stand at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ for what we have done on earth in the body. That judgment exists. That God is real and we are not him. And because of that, we interact with people and we do not have the privilege of putting on the judge's robe Meaning you don't have the privilege of saying, this is what you get and you get nothing else. You're do nothing else from me. I have issued my verdict. You have wronged. I have read the list of offenses and now the ruling has been put in place forever. You see the joy of trusting that God is the final and ultimate judge means that you have this beautiful privilege that exists in tension only in the gospel. And here's this privilege. The privilege is you get to see things for what they really are. You get to see sin as truly sinful, truly harmful, and truly wicked. But you also get the privilege of extending grace constantly. That's what we get to do when we have a God who judges. The challenge of this text is that we will encounter things worthy of judgment and condemnation. That's what Jesus is assuming here. It assumes we've encountered something uh, condemnable, something shameful, something that requires personal forgiveness. And God says, forgive them anyway. Why? 
Because you're not God. And because God forgives sinners. Specifically, God forgave you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. God had mercy. God had grace. Consider James's words in James 4, verses 4 through 6. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's the harm done. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The charges have been read, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Consider also this interaction between Peter and Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came as Peter would and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus isn't limiting math here by saying that's the exact number, no more or no less. He's saying it's infinite. It's perfect. It's complete. If God had a nickel, every time you sinned against him, every time it would have been right for him to condemn you and judge you on the spot to eternal punishment, the world could not contain the debt of your own sin. But he gives more grace in Jesus Christ. God is long-suffering with sinners in order to lead them to repentance. So we ought to be as well. What does this look like specifically in this text? Jesus tells us two specific things. Forgive people even when they don't deserve it and give the benefit of the doubt even when it seems they've lost it. Now, this isn't calling us to be dangerous or foolish. Remember, we talked about this last week. The wisdom of Jesus does not erase the rest of the wisdom of the whole Bible. But these things are challenging to us. This forgiveness when it's not deserved and this giving the benefit of the doubt when it seems to be lost is challenging to our pride, isn't it? Because we tend to think, no, they're going to keep doing this. Someone's got to hold them accountable. Someone's got to tell them this isn't okay. You might feel by cultural standards as a doormat if you live out this text. But that's okay. You're not God. And here, God in the flesh is calling you to do just that. You see, your ability to give someone grace doesn't ignore sin any more than the cross ignores your sin. Your ability to give somebody grace does not cause that person to disobey any more than obeying Jesus can cause sin to flourish. Here Jesus is speaking. We say, well, if I obey you, this sin is going to go unchecked. Nowhere else in all of scripture does obeying Jesus lead to a flourishing of sin. We are not responsible for that. God is. We are responsible to obey. You might feel like a doormat, but I would suggest that to be a doormat to the kingdom of God is the greatest use a Christian can have in this world. And this is the radical grace Jesus is calling us to give to others. And the beautiful thing is this not only to the benefit of others, it's actually the benefit of you. Jesus makes it clear that if you're diligent in extending grace in forgiving those who don't deserve it and giving the benefit of the doubt to those who have lost it, that it will generally 
come back to you in moments where you need forgiveness and you need grace. He used this agricultural term of pressed down, shaken together, running over, good measure being poured into your lap. A corollary for us today is if you've ever gone to Sweet Peaks, which is the only reputable ice cream place in town, and you have a generous scooper, you know what this means. They get that and they press it down and they turn to the blunt end and they just get it down in there and then they lob more and they pack it tight. And then there's this like cantilevered ball of sweet, salty caramel goodness (laughs) overflowing at the rim. This is what Jesus says is for you as you learn to give grace to those who have sinned against you. He says, prepare yourself for that. Isn't that wild? Now, don't we want to say, hold on, we just read what you said 45 seconds ago. That people will hate us and persecute us and malign us and mistreat us. And so we say, certainly this can't be my expectation. But this is the same Jesus in the same message. We, in our sinfulness, want to qualify it. Jesus, who is the creator of all things, the son of God incarnate, wants to say it and simply have you be motivated by it. (laughs) He says, try it. Take me at my word. Give grace and see. And you know what? You might find that the person you're giving grace to fails to acknowledge it at best or even returns it with more harm at worst. But guess what? God, your heavenly father, gives this measure abundantly. God cares for those who obey him. You want to know a secret? The prosperity gospel lies when it says that when we come to Christ, we will be healthy, wealthy, and wise because that's how God rewards us. That is wrong. But you know what is true, that obedience is for our good. God wants us to obey him. And like a good father, that obedience might call us into difficult places, but it's always for our good. Look at this ice cream cone and give grace. Because we are ruled by God, we are free to encounter broken people in a broken world and to forgive those who don't deserve it, and to give to those who feel like they've lost it. But secondly, we're to be led by humility. Read with me verses 39 through 42. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you do not yourself see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus opens this teaching with kind of two anecdotes, one about a blind man leading a blind man, another about disciples and teachers. And both of these anecdotes imply that we should be helping others grow. In a life of following Jesus, there should be leadership, there should be teaching, there should be growth, and there should be the availability to extend and to receive help. But one thing that makes help unhelpful is the blindness of arrogance and hypocrisy. We see a glimpse of this sort of blindness if we just look back to the last encounter Jesus had with the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees are wanting to catch Jesus on some sort of uh, miscue in order to get rid of the problem Jesus poses to their own self-righteousness. And so they set up a trap. They bring a man with a withered hand and they have him in the synagogue on the Sabbath and they say, ah, if Jesus heals on the Sabbath, he will have worked on the Sabbath, he would have violated the Sabbath and now we've got him. But look at the ironic blindness we see in Luke 6, verses nine through 11. And Jesus said to them, that's the Pharisees as they put up the man with the withered hand. I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, that's the man with the withered hand, and his hand was restored. But they, that is the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed what to do, or discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were so dedicated to finding the speck in Jesus' eye, which big reveal, there wasn't one, that they wanted to just get mad that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. That's what they were looking for. If someone healed on the Sabbath, they would have broken the Sabbath law. But did you see what the Pharisees did? In wanting to get mad at a healing on the Sabbath, they went and plotted murder on the Sabbath. That's some hypocritical blindness. And yet that's not their problem. That's our problem. And this sort of reality has no place in the Lord's church. And I want to make something clear here that we see two observations. First, Jesus assumes that a Christian brother will go to a Christian brother to help him with his sin. And secondly, we see that the sin is ultimately addressed. At the end of all these things, Jesus says, do this and then circle back and deal with the speck. In this parable Jesus uses, we see the road to glory has ditches, pits, and dangers. There will be times in following Jesus where someone falls or we grab the person next to us and we say, we shouldn't go over there. Ahead, there's danger. You see, only the arrogant assume a life of following Jesus is a life where the road is only smooth and where we will never need the help of our brothers and sisters. And because of that, Jesus isn't saying, don't help others avoid the danger. He's not saying, hey, let them find the pits on their own. That's fine. It's not your problem. Instead, he's saying, don't be blind about your own danger. Don't be blind about your own pits that you're falling into. You see, an honest man can point out faults in someone else. But a humble man is able to see the fault in someone else and the bigger picture of his own reality. You see, the greatest picture of reality one could have is one that includes yourself. It sees not only those who are on the outside of us, but it sees clearly through the lens of the gospel what lay on the inside of us. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 13. Who's he talking to here? Brothers, Christians. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here's this warning of falling away. And what causes us to fall away? The deceitfulness of sin. And what is the deceitfulness of sin? It's a heart which fails to believe that you yourself are prone to sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
When we move towards others, real issues in others, real sin in others, we need to first humbly examine our own hearts as long as it's called today. Nothing kills a false sense of superiority like the smallest bit of introspection. You want to know the best thing about parenting? It's the worst. Parenting shows you that your eye is a veritable lumber mill and your kids love to take that can of spray paint and run around it and let you know that they've marked all of those logs. I can't tell you how many times I'll hear from another room, one of my kids say to their sibling, don't do that. And from the other room, I'll be like, don't speak to your sibling that way. Got him. I have a boy uh, in, in a house of three other female siblings, and they have reached the age of mutual incompatibility. This adds many challenges to parenting, and I've had to get used to asking a very scary and very real question when I'm disciplining my son, and that is this. Do you see dad treating women this way? Nothing levels the discipline corner like that question. because it requires the humility to say, it could be me, that I might have this problem as well. One pastor in the early church put it this way, he said, when the sight of another's weakness is displeasing to you, recall what you are like, so that the spirit can temper itself in the zeal of correction in order that it should fear what it also corrects. What I often find is true in my life is the sins I notice in the lives of others, when I pause for just that moment of introspection, I realize it's just because they've infringed on the copyright of my own sins. <laughs> and what happens when we do that is, is, is we don't say, oh, well, I have sin, he has sin, I guess we can't deal with the sin. Instead of what it looks like, is going to that brother or sister and saying, we might have a problem together, (laughs) the both of us. And I see it in you because you've helped me see it in me. What might we do to fight for holiness, to fight for repentance, and to change? Yet there are often times where we are so inflamed at sins of others that we think are so beyond ourselves to ever commit. We become righteously indignant that they could possibly sin in this way where nothing could be more distasteful to us as we walk straight into the sin of pride and arrogance. In those moments, what does it look like for you to check your heart for a spirit of condescension and superiority which otherwise would have tainted an interaction that was meant to be for the good of the individual that said you've leveraged for the self-righteousness of yourself? You see, without the gospel, we always view people through two different lenses. We see them as tools we can use to leverage our own standing before God, or we could see them as threats to our own standing before God where they're outperforming us. But the gospel, because Jesus is unthreatened in his value, in his worth, frees us to see people as individuals who need grace, as we were individuals that need grace. You see, Jesus is the great high priest, Hebrews tells us, who is able to sympathize with us, yet was himself without sin. Let's never forget the distinction between Jesus, our great high priest, and all of us friendly priests who sympathize with our brothers and sisters 
in the same clothes of sin, having the same experience of depravity. Gregory the Great, writing to married couples in the sixth century, said this. He said, the married should be advised then that they not worry themselves so much about what they must endure from their spouse, but consider what their spouse must endure on account of them. For if one really considers what must be endured on his account, it is all the easier to bear the things of others. So what might it look like for us in seeing the things of others to see the things in our own hearts? I'll give three quick points of application here. First is pray. You're not God. That's a threat and a challenge. But there is a God. That's a mercy and a grace. And we get to go to him. We get to ask him for help to see what we cannot see. Pray. Second, examine. Examine your hearts through the lens of scripture. Hold up like an x-ray, the original, and see through it and see what lines up and what doesn't line up. Pick passages like 2 Peter 1, Ephesians 6, 1 Corinthians 13, and be sober to examine yourself off the standard of God's word. And know that when you fail, for you inevitably will, God gives grace to change and become more like Jesus. And lastly, ask, pray to God, examine in scripture, and ask others. Ask people in your community group, your Bible study, your roommates, what they see in your life, where you are failing to live up, where you might have logs that you can't see yourself because your own perception is limited. You see, this kind of examination, I want to be careful because sometimes we view this and there's this misconception that if you have sin, you can't help others who have that same sin. It simply means that you need to be aware of it and you need to be willing to deal with it. If God didn't want sinful people caring for sinful people, he would have never given you the church. There's one sinless shepherd and it's Jesus and it's not you. That burden's been lifted. All right, high five for all of us. We're not Jesus. We are not sinless but Jesus still calls us to care for the sin in the hearts of others. We should be mindful here, lest we become overly paranoid, that Jesus doesn't say, go deal with the speck in your eye. Why is that? Because oftentimes we can't see our own speck. And that could lead us to this paranoid exhaustion of trying to discern these deep, secret, hidden sins, and we're worrying if it's ever there. Guess what? God has assumed that your roommate's gonna see that before you do. (laughs) That's what the church is here for, to see the speck. What he's calling you to do is to look at the stinking log sticking in your eye. (laughs) It doesn't take a lot of introspection. It's visible. That's the humor of it. Jesus himself is making this point, like when you're in your daughter's eye and you're like, there's something there. And then you look over and there's a guy with a two by four coming out of it. One is easily discernible, one is not. So look inward. And know that God will give you eyes to see what needs to be dealt with before you care for others. Humbly check the log and graciously move towards the speck. We're to be ruled by grace. We're to be led by humility. And lastly, we are to be filled with goodness. Look at Luke 6, verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. So here's judgment again. Look at the fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of, so if you live in Missoula, we're disconnected from farming, but that's a rhetorical like no, okay? Brambles don't grow figs, thorn bushes don't grow grapes. I know the good food store might convolute all of that, but he's talking about two things that are mutually incompatible here, all right? So the city folk got it. Now we'll continue. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. So first of all, here we notice the problem of sin. Sin is not a behavior problem. Sin is a being problem. This is why when we share the gospel with our non-Christian coworkers and neighbors and family, we don't lead with, hey, you gotta stop watching the rated R movies, stop cursing, stop drinking, because those are behaviors. You could change all those things. You could cut off all the fruit but you can't make a bramble bush a fig tree by taping figs to it. You can't make a thorn bush a grapevine by simply cutting it low to the ground and tying it to a trellis. They're incompatible. We do not need new fruit. We need a new root. We need to be made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. The problem of sin is not something you overcome by trying harder to produce a crop of good fruit. You can't do it. Try as you might. A bramble produces brambles. Thorn bush produces thorns and sinners produce more sin. We need the help of another. You see, this text, Jesus helps us here. He's like, when we get to the end, he says, I'm not talking about botany. I'm talking about you. Good people produce good fruit. Bad people produce bad fruit. And this is really good news for those who are good. Good people will treat others goodly. Good people will produce good, glorious fruit. Good people will enjoy good. The problem is that none of us are good. Remember what we saw last week. How does Jesus speak about his adopted brothers and sisters in Luke 6, 35? He calls you ungrateful and evil. All of us start there. But what is Jesus assuming here? What's the only thing that can change our present condition? Look back at Luke 6, verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies, Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. What changes our root, what converts us, is not new fruit, but it's encounter with Jesus Christ and his mercy, which makes us an entirely new being. We belong to the most high. We are no longer children of the devil. We are children of God through Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and behold, the new has come. Look what Paul says in Romans 7, 21 through 8, 1. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What a wretched man am I! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here Paul has encountered things worthy of judgment and condemnation, but what does he do? Thanks be to God! Through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I still serve the law of sin. There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the point? You're the bad tree. I'm the blind guide. We are the bad teachers. We are those who sit under just judgment worthy of all of our condemnation, but on account of Jesus, judgment changes. On account of Jesus, you change. You are no longer what you once were. We will encounter difficulties in dealing with the sin of other believers, but here is the optimistic truth that God changes sinners that Jesus addresses the root. And we can expect as difficult and as hard as it is to move into those places that the Holy Spirit will continue to do Holy Spirit things. This is the beautiful, glorious doctrine of justification that though sin may remain in your body, it no longer reigns in your heart. Jesus reigns. Jesus has made you new. You see, conversion isn't the idea that everyone stops judging. You could be the best, least judgmental person and not be a Christian. Conversion is the reality where you judge yourself as fallen short of the glory of God and see your only hope in life and death is Christ's sacrifice and death and resurrection in your place. Now, why does Jesus include this portion on good fruit here, this wonderful truth of justification and sanctification? Well, look at what he says in verse 45. Out of the evil, or out of the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. We've been talking about words. Remember what we saw in verse 42? How can you say to your brother? How do we avoid the saying the wrong things? We change the treasure of our hearts. Jesus' point is a bit more clear, isn't it? If what occupies your heart is the power of redeeming grace, which saved a wretch like you, then we should leak grace wherever we go. Our hearts treasure something different. Grace that deals with sin, for sure, but grace that looks like grace. Good fruit drawn from the unending root of righteousness in Jesus Christ. The British pastor J.C. Ryle says, whenever Christ is best known and obeyed, there will always be found the most real joy and peace. In light of Jesus' words here, we don't change Jesus' words, we could change J.C. Ryle's words, though. I'd like to suggest this. Wherever Christ is best known and treasured, there will always be found the most joy and peace. You see, Jesus on this passage of judgment ends with what we treasure. Isn't that weird? Because when we sometimes think about judges, we fear them. But don't we also long for them? Isn't that why we watch silly singing competitions and food cook-offs? So we might hear a judge say, incredible, better than I ever expected. More than that, it's the sound of judgment that kills our anxiety. Can you imagine 
if we had no, if God did not tell us the way in which he would measure each of you when you stand before Jesus, there's nothing more anxious than not knowing how to please God. But Jesus has told us how we will be measured. We will be measured on account of our response to him, his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death, his vicarious resurrection, and his glorious new life. We are saved by judgment. Jesus' judgment in our place, it becomes our treasure. We cannot think of salvation without thinking of judgment. We cannot think of it without thinking that one day the God of the universe will see the true reality of your heart and on account of Jesus, he will say, incredible, better than you ever imagined just like my son. This should cause us to treasure the measure of grace. No one who treasures grace will fail to give it. No one filled to the brim, pressed down, shaking together, running over with the good measure of the gospel will ever speak or move places where their words are not seasoned the same. And if and when we do, we repent, we return to the well, and we seek to give what Jesus gives us in grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this text sounds wonderful on Twitter and on Facebook and on the pages of scripture, but it is harder to live out because we encounter our own pride, our own wants, our own weaknesses, and the ways in which the gospel is understood in our mind but not yet pierced our heart. So Lord, I pray that you overwhelm us with the treasure of grace that what saves us is what preoccupies us. That the word spoken in our defense in Jesus Christ shapes the words we use to care for others who are also sinning. Lord, I pray that this culture might correct and might typify this church in our community groups, in our gatherings, in our discipleship, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, and in our romance. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.